Daniel, you go ahead. You got it going? Okay. Just got the guys in the sound booth over there. Y'all awake? How many of you have experienced this? You're in your house, minding your own business, during the day and evening, at night, whenever, and then all of a sudden, you hear a whole lot of racket, a lot of noise, strange sounds. Just all kinds of stuff going on outside. How many of us would ask what's going on and get up and go outside and see would you go outside you know yet the noise the activity the sounds the whatever it is that's happening it's like that call come on out and see what's going on our curiosity maybe our concern maybe we're upset because we were sleeping or we're going to get outside and we're going to find out what's happening we just have to know, what is all the racket about? And as we have looked at the first several verses in Acts chapter 2, this is what's happening. There's a whole bunch of people gathered in a room upstairs. And they've been up there for days. Who knows what they're doing? So we're involving and enjoying rather a big festival, Pentecost, and it's a great time of celebration and all of a sudden coming from this room is all this noise and all this talk and languages that we even understand and we're not even from here and coming out in the street what is going on here these people must be crazy they're drunk so the people you remember in verses six to eight they want to know what's happening What's going on? Just what's going on? And with that question, Peter pounced. The apostle Peter seized the moment to preach. He seized the moment to explain that what they were experiencing and hearing and seeing and listening to and watching was nothing other than the outpouring of God's Spirit, which had been prophesied by the prophet Joel hundreds of years before. That this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, God raised up and made him both Lord and Christ. This is what they are seeing. And this is what he is going to take an opportunity to use this to preach the gospel, to explain what's happening. Now, there's a lesson in that which we won't go into except to say this. If you and I are always ready and poised, eager to share the gospel, you don't have to carry around the biggest King James ever been made with a bullhorn and start shouting in people's faces, although that's what the Lord has called you to do, do it. 
You just have to wait for comments. Questions. Be sensitive. And someone will say something, ask something, do something that the Holy Spirit will say, now is the time to strike with the gospel. That's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. So as we're going to read this sermon this morning, let me encourage us in this. It is just the way we are as people to listen to information, get the context, okay, 120 people, upper room, Peter preached this, and this happened, 3,000 were saved, Acts chapter 3, and jumping around and yelling and screaming, heal this man, and then they did that, chapter 4, they did, 5, they got this Ananias, they dropped dead, okay, okay I understand Acts. I know the, defi- I'm, I know the information from Acts. I, I, I know what the Word of God says. But what's critical is that we understand why we know what the Word of God says. Why has the Holy Spirit given us this Word? It's not just to fill us with information about Him. It's to fill us with Himself. So that which we hear with our ears The Holy Spirit's purpose is to cause us to receive with our hearts. And in this series, like every series that we teach and preach and share, the basic purpose is that God will use those who preach and teach the word as his mouthpiece to communicate the content of the word so that having received the content of the word by his spirit who lives in us who are his he will then begin that great work that mysterious work although that very practical and real work of conforming us into his very son by transforming us by the application of his word in our lives. So we've been talking about waiting. Waiting with faith. Praying, praying with faith. Preaching, preaching with faith to receive from God. This morning we'll look at this sermon that was preached, this first gospel sermon, this Pentecostal sermon. Because every sermon that is faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ since that day has been a Pentecostal sermon. So this series, like every other, and Eric talked about it this morning, and we sang about it, is about real Substantive, Holy Spirit, moved, created change in our lives. So let me ask you a question. 
how many of us have actually begun to experience some real identifiable change in our lives since we started this series? Have you actually begun? Now, that change may be just an anticipation of something that you didn't anticipate. It may be an awareness of something that you were not aware of. So I think when we say change, we're looking for activities of things. Well, that's part of it. But there's also a whole, if you would, mindset, a whole attitudinal, a whole atmospheric change about what God is going to do, what he's done, and what he will do. I think many of us, hopefully all of us, have experienced more change than we're aware of, which is fine. Because God does not have his word preached and taught without touching our lives in a substantive way. Father, Father, cause not only this morning, but every time the word of God is opened by us or someone else, Father, would you cause that word to be a heart, a head and heart activity? Father, would you change us moment by moment, word by word, listening by listening, step by step, obedience by obedience, fellowship by fellowship. Father, change us more and more into the greatest transformation that we could ever desire and hope for, even to be conformed to the image of your your great Son. Father, do this this morning in a greater, deeper, broader, more consistent, lasting form by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read chapter 2 of Acts, Peter's sermon. And then we'll talk about it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon your soul to Hades or to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. 
being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. But David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's ready. And the interesting thing to me is that Peter didn't know that he was ready and he didn't know that he was going to be ready and he didn't know he should have been ready, but the Holy Spirit knew all this. And in Peter, because Peter's heart was ready, what a sermon. What an impact 3,000 people shared, uh, saved because of this. He starts off like this. Everybody listen to what I'm going to say. This is highly significant and eternally significant news that I'm going to tell you today. Is that the way you feel when you come to church, when you're in a Bible study, when you open the Word of God? How do you feel? I'm going to open my Word. I'm going to read some today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray a little bit. Go listen to this guy talk and have a nice time. This has eternal consequences. This is God himself speaking to us and sharing eternal things with us and I might even say this I do believe and although you could correct me but I doubt if you will I believe that every time God opens his mouth we better listen you see they're about to hear a message that has eternal consequences to those who receive and even to those who reject So Peter begins with the humanity of Jesus. How does he begin this? He doesn't begin his sermon about the people. He begins a sermon about God. Now, it's not wrong to begin sermons about people and then bring the issues of God in. But Sometimes in our speaking and our sharing, we overemphasize people and de-emphasize God. And we need to make sure that the gospel is about God, for God, and from God. And we need to make sure that whatever sharing we do of the gospel, that the preponderance of the emphasis is upon God. So it begins with Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus was a real man. Oh, okay. So what? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be a real man? A man who had to eat, he had to sleep, he had to potty, he had to take a bath. He got dirt in his eyes and had to probably scratch his eyes, you know, get the dirt out of his eyes. He was a real man, a real man. Why was this necessary? Because a real man, Adam, in Genesis 3, 6, ate from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, don't eat of it. A real man ate that fruit. And so a real man caused the fall. And so a real man, Jesus, and a divine man must come in order to restore us. Jesus, a real man, and a divine man at one time must restore us. Why? Where were we before we were born? In the loins of our parents. How many of us know that had our grandfather died before he was married and had children, we wouldn't be here? I mean, have you ever thought of that? If my grandma or my great-grandma, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma, grandpa, somebody, had that person died before that person had a child, we wouldn't be here. Didn't think of this, did you? Oh, yeah. Why? Because, you see, we come from other people. And we were in Adam. And when Adam sinned, all of humanity was in Adam and in Adam, all man sinned. We all sinned in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 4 is, as in Adam all died. And you say, well, that's not fair. Well, here's why it's fair, and here's why it's good news. Not only were we in Adam when he sinned, in Christ shall also all be made alive. In Christ, in his resurrection, all of those in Christ shall have eternal life. So see, all of a sudden, the deal with the position is important. We're not condemned because of what we do. We are condemned because we were in the wrong place, in the wrong person. We're saved not because of what we did. We're saved because God has taken us out of the wrong person and put us in the right man. Therefore, now, in the right man, I can obey God. So you didn't get in Adam because of what you did personally, and you're not getting out of him because of what you did personally. We're in him by birth, and we get out of him as God takes us out of him and places us into Christ, which we receive by faith. And so this is what Peter is going to show, that this man Jesus is a man, but he's a whole lot more than just the ordinary guy down the street. Jesus is a divine man. So Peter continues, he's a man. But he continues by showing that Jesus, as I said, is much more than just another man. He's a divine man. He's a man attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Where's the proof that Jesus is more than a man? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? How can you tell? Well, first look at Jesus' life. And Peter said, God was showing us that in this man, God was also in this man. And God was attesting to the fact that Jesus is divine and a human at the same time. How does he do it? Through signs and wonders. What signs and wonders? Well, let's remember this from the Gospel of John. 
John lists seven signs that prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In chapter 2, remember Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, how many of you can go to a wedding and tell them, look, you see those six water pots over there that are empty? Fill them with water. Now, Father, change them into wine. And now they're the best wine they ever had. How many of you can do that? Anybody here? Okay. In chapter 4, he heals a nobleman's son. Jesus, my son's sick. Jesus heals him. He's demonstrating that God is with him. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. Remember? The waters and the guy can't pull himself around. Chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, so he's not even counting the women and the children, so who knows how many. Can you imagine preparing turkey for 5,000 people? How many of you prepared turkey for 5,000? How many of you could feed 15,000 people? Except for Pete Shepherdson. He's strange. We know that. (laughs) Pete's the only man who can do that. How many of us could feed 15,000 people out there? We got our disciples to come together. We got one little kid here has a couple of fish and some water bread. We, he does this and whatever. Jesus prays, whatever. Gives all these, and they send out the disciples and they come back. Everybody is fed and they have 12 baskets full. How many of us could do that? How many of us can walk on water in chapter 6? How many of us can heal a blind man? A man born blind, chapter 9. And then in chapter 11, how many of us have ever been to a funeral and laid hands on the dead person and raised him up? Peter said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, a real man, but God is showing you he's more than a man. And he says, as you know, you saw these miracles. Many of these people were there when Jesus was doing this. You see, we're only 50 days from the crucifixion. So we're not weeks and months and years. This is just within a few months. Just a few months ago, Jesus was doing these things. Only a divine man can do these things. But you see, having shown that Jesus is a divine man, Jesus of Nazareth, connecting him to earth, he's a divine man, he's a heavenly man, Peter now turns to the heart of the gospel. Because what makes the gospel the gospel is this, that in this man, the humanity of man in perfection without sin and the divinity of God come together in this one man, in that mystery. And Peter begins to share with them what's going on. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, what is the gospel? Remember what John 3.17 says? Everybody remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What does John 3.17 say? For God did not send his son into the world to 
condemned the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is what God is doing in this man whom they crucified. Peter's saying, yes, this is a man whom you thought was an ordinary man. Oh, he has some real power here. But that power, those miracles, those signs and wonders were God's work to show you that this is not just another man. This is an extraordinary, different, and unique man on earth. It is God's man. It is the man in whom God himself dwells in the person of Christ. And how did you receive him? You crucified him and you killed him. You see, but the real interesting thing here is this. And I, I used to hear teachings of this, that, that Jesus got himself into a corner and, and he did some wrong things and as a result, he got crucified. You know, he just made some decisions and had he been different, you know, and this and they did, he, things just were getting out of hand and huh, well, you know, look what happened. Is that what happened? Might I say that he was in absolute, complete control of every moment of his life and especially of his arrest and trials and crucifixion. Absolute personal control. Too much to go into today, but you read the Gospel of John. And when they say, you know, the men are coming in the, to arrest him, three different commands Jesus gives to these soldiers. The guy being arrested simply doesn't command the soldiers. Just read the Gospel of John and look at the evidence for yourself and ask yourself who's really in charge here. Their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, yes, they did it. But it was God's plan. Listen to what Peter says in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's personal plan. Quoting from I. Howard Marshall, he says this. The crucifixion took place according to the plan and purpose of God. Now, can you get that in your mind before we go any further? How many of you would say that in the natural, the crucifixion of Jesus was the worst day of his life? In the natural. Did he have a worse day than that? His hair was messed up. Didn't eat enough. The turkey was cold. He has to wait in line. I say these things because Gene can identify with me in this. You know, someone didn't call him on time. What's happening? If God's plan and God's hand is orchestrating the worst day for the Lord Jesus, what can we say about our own days? Who's orchestrating it? God, you, or the devil? So he says, the crucifixion took place according to the plan and purpose of God. 
Here we had the paradox of divine predestination and human free will in its strongest form. Even in putting Jesus to death, the Jews were simply, and they were guilty of that, they simply were fulfilling what God had already determined must take place and indeed had foretold in the prophetic writings. Can we allow that to inform our lives and the activities of our day? I need to hear this and remember this moment by moment of my day. In Christ, my life is under the hand and guidance of God. Is yours? Is yours? Then why do we complain? You see, you crucified him. Yes. Man threw down Jesus. But what did God do? He raised him up. God raised him up in verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here is the wisdom and mercy of God. God would use man's violent rejection of his son as his means of forgiving and restoring man to himself. God raised him up. What is the quintessential proof that Jesus of Nazareth is God's son? What is the definite and complete proof? Someone may say, well, how do you know? How do we know it's not made up? Because the testimony of history is this. There ain't no body. Oh, well, of course not. Of course not. Any ding-ding knows that. I mean, any doo-doo knows that if you're going to preach a resurrection, you got to get rid of the body. Or the man has to sneak off to India and marry this woman, Mary of Magdala, and they have a family together. And that family becomes the royal house of France. Isn't that a lot of ego that the French think they are? the family and their descendants of Jesus and Mary Magdala. English would never do that. <laughs> so, wait a minute. But, but they have found bits and pieces of papyri from the same time. And it says that. And it says this and that. You may be shaken, okay. Let us not allow one bit of small piece of papyri to undo the thousands upon thousands of pieces of evidence and literature from the Bible and all the writings to undo all of that. But secondly, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, he appeared to over 500 people. Well, how do we know they weren't telling a lie? It was a big conspiracy. See, what happened was this. The apostle Peter and the other guys got all these folks together, 500 of them. took a little while, but they got together. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put together the biggest hoax ever had on mankind. And we're going to 
say Jesus rose from the dead. Now, he didn't, his body, you know, but but we're going to say that. Okay, now the first thing I'm going to want to know is this. Christian, what am I going to want to know? What do I get out of it? Well, we don't know what you're getting out of it, but but it's going to be a good deal. Okay. So I know that, you know, Jesus didn't go off and marry somebody. I know his body is not there, you know. They didn't bury it behind the oak tree in the side yard down the street. And I'm doing okay with that. I'm telling people Jesus is alive. And then I get arrested. And then my family gets arrested. And they come to me and they say, Phil, now you tell us where he is. I don't know. He rose from the dead, brother. He rose from the dead. Okay. So they take my daughter. Put her arms against the wall. Take out a hammer and big nails. And I said, what you going to do? What you going to do? I'm, we're going to nail your daughter to the wall and we're going to throw spears at her. Now, how much money did they have to pay me to lie that I'm going to keep it up? Do you think I would have said where he is? How many of you would have said where he is? Why didn't they say there is no body? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He did rise. It is a fact of history, and it is the quintessential proof that this Bible, this gospel, this Christ, this salvation is literally of God. Oh, I don't understand a whole lot. I really don't. I don't understand how old rocks can do with six days in Genesis and how this, oh, out there and all that. I don't know any of that. All I know is this, that Jesus is alive, and everything he said, everything he did, is the truth completely. That's all I know. And you know what? That's all I need to know. So we have questions about all this stuff. I understand that. But when I am assaulted by the questions and the confusion and the mystery, I do this regularly when I hear this stuff. I don't know, but I do know this. He's alive. Amen, church? He's alive. When I'm under attack by the enemy, I don't know much, but I know this. He's alive. When I don't get my way, when I get upset, what do I know? What do I know, church? He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. So in order to prove that Jesus' death was God's plan, how does he prove that? Well, you know, it just happened that this and that. How can you prove? Peter goes to the scriptures to prove this. And I'm not going to read that about David, but what Peter does in verses 25 to 28, he quotes King David saying that the Messiah would die. Well, he didn't say that. He just said, no, well, when you don't let the Holy One body die, you know, stay in the grave. That means he died to get to the grave. Peter says, David, a thousand years ago, prophesied by the Spirit that there's coming a one who are gonna, who's going to die and God's going to raise him up. Peter said, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, all those signs and wonders, God was testifying, he's that 
holy one. And God has raised him up. Why can't they find the body? Because there's no body to find. It's all true. It's true. Church, let's be encouraged in the midst of difficulty and shaking and confusion. Let's be encouraged. He's alive. He's alive. Then in verses 29 to 31, Peter tells him that David was speaking about the resurrection of Christ and not about himself. Since David died, he said he can't be talking about himself. James, David died. There's his tomb over there. Remember the tomb? Let's talk about the Christ, the Messiah. So that when you see a man who comes with mighty works and signs and wonders, and when you see that man die, and then all of a sudden you're hearing everybody testify even to the point of death for themselves that this man is alive again. There is no body. What happened to the body? There is no body. You know he rose, and all of a sudden you realize that's the Messiah. That's the Holy One. And Peter said, that's the Holy One whom you crucified. Why is the resurrection so important? Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with Jesus and with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. Because Jesus rose, God promises for those of us in Christ that we also one day, if we die before Jesus returns, we will rise with him to have new bodies like his forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all of us died, remember that in Adam, all sin, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We were forgiven in Christ when he died on the cross our sin was buried in Christ when Jesus was buried. And our forgiveness was raised with Christ when he was raised. And our acceptance before God the Father was the result of that. You see, but God not only raised Jesus from the dead, he also exalted him to the highest place as a man. And how do we know that the blood of Jesus was acceptable to God for our forgiveness. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Jesus' resurrection shows that the blood, of, that blood that he shed on the cross was accepted by God as the payment for our sin. But how do we know that we're going to get any good on that? How do we know that that's going to be applied to our account? How do we know that? outpouring of the Holy Spirit that proves that Jesus not only rose from the dead but that he's exalted and as the exalted man in heaven he sends the Holy Spirit to earth to include us in that the good and the experience of that resurrection he had to be exalted he had to receive all authority in heaven and earth Matthew 28 
And having received all authority, he sends the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I thought that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, as the Son of God, doesn't he have all authority? Why did he need to be given all authority? If he is the Son of God, Eddie, he didn't need to be given authority. But he said, I have been given authority. Why? Jesus is not given authority on the basis of his eternal sonship before the Father. He is given authority as the risen man, the Son of God. And so as a man, the man Jesus Christ, the God-man forever, as a man and for man, he sends the Holy Spirit to collect us to be with him forever. And we are ever maintained before the presence and glory of God in the everlasting, eternal manhood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in heaven for how long? As long as Jesus remains a man before the throne of God. And is he ever going to cease being a risen man, the heavenly man? It's never going to cease, so how long are we going to be in heaven? Forever. You see, because we were raised in his manhood. In his manhood, we were condemned in the manhood of Adam, and we've been raised in the manhood of Jesus Christ, who has sent the Holy Spirit because he's been exalted to the highest place. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing today. The day of Pentecost proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, having died for our sin and has been raised and has been exalted. And the proof of that is that God sends the Holy Spirit into the world to collect his people unto himself. The proof of that. So everything that God does in us by the Spirit. May I repeat what I just said? Everything that God does in us by the Spirit. I didn't say everything that happens in me, you know, that I do. Everything that God accomplishes us in us by the Spirit, whether it's an attitudinal change or whether I'm used to raise the dead in Jesus' name, whatever it is, from the least to the greatest as far as we evaluate it, everything the Holy Spirit does in us, with us, and through us is a specific demonstration and proof that Jesus is exalted and sitting or standing at the right hand of God. Why is it so important for us to desire more of the work and the outpouring and the ministry and the manifestation of God's Spirit? Well, certainly it's important because we need more and, you know, we'll get more and it's good for us. But that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is this. God, through these things, is manifesting more and more that there is a man in the heavens who is his son and he's ruling and reigning and will return. See, everything about the Holy Spirit's work in me is a testimony 
that Jesus of Nazareth, a man, oh, a mighty man, who was crucified and buried, but he was raised and he was exalted. Everything about the Holy Spirit and what he does in my life and in your life, individually and corporately, is a declaration about that man. Everything. Therefore, in verse 36, the apostle says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, who? Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You made him both Lord and Christ. I realize that I didn't put, we didn't put all this in the notes, but look at that, Lord and Christ. What is he saying there? When the Bible in the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord. When we see the word Lord referencing Jesus in the New Testament, it's from the Greek kurios. Did I say that right? It's from the Greek, K-U-R-I-O-S, K-U-R-I-O-S. It is the same word that the original Old Testament Scripture is translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in the Septuagint a couple of 250 years before. 250 years before, a group of maybe 70 or so rabbis, Jewish scholars got together and they took the Hebrew scriptures and translated them into Greek because most of the folks were reading Greek by that time. And every time in the Old Testament, where the name of God, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, his personal holy name that you see for the first time in Genesis 2-4, and then you see especially explicated in Exodus chapter 3. Remember, I am that I am. Tell them that I am hath sent you. Remember the God of glory appearing to Moses. Remember the God of glory who opens the Red Sea. Remember the God of glory who was the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua 5. Remember the God of glory who wipes out the nations in Cana. Remember the God of glory who comes down in fire upon Mount Carmel at the word of Elijah. Remember the God of glory. In the Old Testament, 6,800 plus times his name is mentioned. But in the Old Testament, when we look in our Bibles, if you were to look in your Bible, you will see it as Lord. Capital L, lowercase cap. O, lowercase r, lowercase d. That is the personal name of God that was translated Adonai in, you know, in, in, is that right? I got that right, right? I'm going to make sure I get all this right. So the New Testament Lord is referencing the personal name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. 6,800 times. The word Adonai, excuse me, is the other name for Lord, which is used about 90, 95 times. You can see it, the way it's written in your Bible. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, what is he saying? Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh. He's using the personal name of God. So when Peter says, 
God has made him both Lord and Christ. What is he saying about this Jesus? He is saying the most astounding thing that they have ever heard. That this man whom you have crucified, this man who has risen from the dead and has ascended and who has sent the Holy Spirit, this is none other than the God of the Old Testament, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gathered his people together in Israel, the one who sat upon the Mount Horeb on Sinai and dictated his commandments to the people, the one who led by fire and by cloud. Who is he? It's this Jesus whom you crucified. But God raised him up and God exalted him. He is that Lord. He's also Christ. What does Christ? It's the Greek for Messiah, holy one, anointed one. Lord means his person. Christ is identifying his work. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sin. Matthew 1.21, Joseph, you shall call this child whom Mary is bearing and will deliver. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will deliver his people from their sin. This is the Christ. This is the ministry of that man. And how can he save his people? Because he's not a mere man. He is the God of glory and a man and in this context this man is not only a real human being he's also a divine man how it comes together we don't know but Jesus is able to do what he did because he's divine and he's human this is the one they crucified this is the one they buried this is the one whom God raised up this is the one who has been exalted this is the one who has proved what God has done by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And he continues to prove it today in our midst by the activity and work and the presence of his Spirit among us. See, Jesus, Peter is saying that this Jesus is a confirmation and a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus, after the crucifixion in Luke 24, 27 Two of the disciples have left Jerusalem. Now think about this. You've been with Jesus for three years. Never has any man spoken like this. Your heart is being stirred. Hope. Ministry. You've never been cared for and loved like this man. You've never seen a man like this. It's just almost like it's a magnet drawing you. I, I just, you got to come see, Peter. Come see. Come see. He's totally affecting everything about your life. And then he's arrested. He's beaten. He's crucified. And he dies. Oh, my God. Think of how you'd feel. We can't even touch it. And so after the crucifixion in Luke 24, three days later, two disciples are leaving. And there's a fellow on the road and say, hey, can I join you? Yeah. They start talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem. This man says, what things? He's drawing them out. Oh, man. We had hoped. Mm. We had hoped. We had hoped this was the Messiah. Oh, 
man, we had hoped it. And Jesus, the good teacher that he is, here's what it says in verse 27 of Luke 24. And beginning with Moses, where does that begin in the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, all through the Old Testament, he takes the whole Old Testament, and there is the greatest school of the word day in all the world. And he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Think of that. What did he say? I don't know because it wasn't there. But we do know in generality what he said. So let me ask you to do this. Let's stand together. Stand up. And let's listen together to what Jesus may have said to what the scriptures say about this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and who rose from the dead. What does the scripture say? In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, the captain of the host of the Lord. In Ruth, our kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, our reigning king. Who is this man? In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the broken down walls of our lives. In Psalms, he's the Lord, our shepherd. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. Who is he? Who is this man? In Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. Daniel, the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Zephaniah, he's our savior. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he's the Messiah. In Mark, the wonder worker. In Luke, the son of man. And in John, the son of God. Who is this man? Who is this man? In Revelation, he's the king of kings. Who is he? He's Abel's sacrifice. He's Noah's rainbow. He's Jacob's ladder. Who is this man? He's a pearl of great price. He's a prince of peace. He's our soon coming king. Who is this man? Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and true and right in righteousness he judges and he makes war who is this man his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no man knows but himself and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God who is this man whom they have crucified who has been raised and exalted and whom God has made both Lord and Christ who is he from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty who is this man on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords 
This is the one who was crucified. This is the one who was buried. This is the one who was raised. This is the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ, proven and demonstrated by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. This is our Savior. This is our Lord, our soon coming King, whom we worship and adore forever. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Just the uh, scribe and crown. 